0: Listening to Sidious Playground podcast. And I'm glad you're here. I'm Rick Enlow, your host, and I'm here with Dave Hillis in the beautiful Pacific Northwest, where our air quality is right up there in the uh, good division right now. So we're thankful for that. Yeah, particularly
1: given our, our earlier uh, sort of excursion, we were yeah. right there in the, the worst in the world.
0: So, worst in the world. But, you know, we love being number one. In in something, so <laughs> we do. <laughs> yeah, we lowered our average to raise uh, our whatever, and right. so yeah, it's. But well, we're back, and uh, we do have uh, a special. Um, I guess you know we have all of us have been really you know praying for the folks that are being devastated by uh, the fires, and here we are sometimes mm-hmm. just concerned about the smoke, but uh, we are today uh, looking forward to continuing um, our fall twenty twenty series, uh, which has been pivoting on the idea of being a reactive, uh, leader and talking about reactive, uh, and responsive leadership, especially during a time of pandemic. And uh, certainly, uh, that's, that's been a curious thing, Dave. Uh, I think originally say late February, everybody thought, well, we can do this. We'll, uh, you know, we'll, we'll sort of, uh, you know, get reorganized here for a couple months and it'll be great. And now we're 10, 11 months into it.
1: Yeah. So, yeah. 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 It's, uh, you know, I mean, to use the phrase, right, that comes in uh, Wizard of Oz, it's not Kansas anymore, Dorothy. And uh, and I think we're all walking through that and trying to gain a little bit of a sense. Okay. If it's not Kansas, uh, what is it? And yeah. I think part of the argument, uh, Rick, that we've been making in leadership foundations, which of course is not our argument, it's, uh, it's James Allison's argument, is that if we're going to be able to uh, understand if it's not Kansas, what is it? It's going to best be done, uh, best be navigated, best be exegeted, whatever the word is you want to use, from a non-reactive place.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, yeah. And, you know, I think that's counterintuitive. There's a There's a part of you when something like this sweeps over us, it almost feels unnatural uh, not to react, right? Not to get into a kind of uh, almost fetal position of sorts. And so um, you and I have been having conversations. I know we at the LF Global Office have been having conversations of saying, okay, what does it mean to take a breath uh, to try to gain a wider perspective and gain some sense that whatever the Holy Spirit is going to do and is doing through us, it's going to happen probably more effectively from a non-reactive place.
0: Yeah. In fact, I heard a psychologist talk about the, from the psychological point of view, this... uh you know, kind of fight and flight response we have to something that's a critical event and how that is not going to be sustainable <laughs> in, in this kind of a scenario and that we do need to ha- understand some kind of spiritual uh, response that, it, that is, is superimposed over that, that we sort of emotionally feel. And I think that's absolutely true. And, uh, and certainly we're surrounded by examples of reaction and overreaction. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, I mean, so it's kind of in, a little bit enticing to, to, you know, to not mimic what we see. But um, mm-hmm. certainly James has been, uh, James Allison, that is, has been a um, guy that we've sort of quoted. And in fact, Dave, why don't you, uh, you have that quote by James that we've kind of been um, um, referencing?
1: I do. I do. And I, I probably should have it memorized by this time, but uh, I, do, I don't quite yet. So let me uh, let me read it. Um, and again, it, it's kind of a funny little story, Rick. I, uh, James has been a good friend for a lot of years. And uh, when we picked this as our leadership theme, and I think we mentioned this in the last couple podcasts, this, of course, was all pre-COVID, pre-George Floyd. Yeah. Um, and had, in some ways, no idea how prophetic this particular quote would be. But, yeah, so here's, here's what James says. And, uh, uh, again, we've adapted it some, but neither reactive churches nor reactive organizations, and here's LF's part, nor leaders
2: mm-hmm. can
1: be part of the sign of the beginning of gathered humanity reconciled with God. The fact is that the meaning of the gospel— the life of God, the sense of the spirit is never to be found in reactive places. It is always and only found in the and here are the three key phrases, right? Mm-hmm. Hard won space where rivalry has broken down and forgiveness
0: emerges. Yeah, well, those are that that is the triple threat right there. Mm. Uh hard won space. What you know. Take that one, turn that one over for a second. Yeah, I, you know, I think the
1: initial um, kind of thought here is, is things like Jesus saying, uh, you know, uh, pick up my cross, um, mm-hmm. you know, in order to live, die, um, you know, continue to knock. Um, I think all of those sort of emanate or pivot from a place of suggesting that this this life of faith um, You know, it is not something that you naturally fall into. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, it's not something that, you know, one would uh, say, you know, is as easy um, as and then fill in the blank. Um, There's something about, I think, the spiritual life, the interior life that requires a kind of intentionality, a kind of purposefulness Mm -hmm. um, that that really, I think, can best be summed up. You know as a hard one place um, yeah you know, I, I even think about this morning the gospel that I was reading uh, and Jesus indicates that uh, you know essentially stay vigilant and of course the assumption in him having to say stay vigilant is how easy it is uh, to fall asleep you know to uh, to kind of begin to just go with the flow I mean, th- this statement—not um, to go too far down the rabbit hole for James comes out of his uh, long-term uh, study of really who he would describe as his mentor, his his guru, and that's uh, the writings, the thinking of Rene Girard. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. and we've talked about Girard on this on this podcast before, and, and maybe we can pick him up again because, in some ways, I think Rick, if I remember right. Uh, Rene Girard was probably one of our first couple uh, podcasts way back now, seven years ago. Yeah, uh, he has he has lasted well. Uh, his his you know thinking, his writing, I think is more relevant than ever. But the basic argument is that we are all mimetic creatures, and we uh, are constituted. We become. Uh, on the basis of our um, imitation of other people's desires. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, And it really does away with this notion that James oftentimes talks about uh, with regard to the romantic myth that somehow I'm uniquely uh, made. There's nobody like me. We're all Mm -hmm. snowflakes. I mean, all that, that kind of (laughs) stuff. And and James, and because of Gerard come in and say, ah, not so Uh, we, uh, we are uh, imitative creatures and, if we need to have any proof of that, all we need to do is look at Madison Avenue and the way that, uh, you know, marketing and advertising are done. Yeah. But that's all background to say that that what happens in uh, mimesis or Imitation is that we begin to rival, right, with the person mm-hmm. next door. We buy the new car because, you know, we thought that would maybe give us a one-up on our neighbor and then yeah. she buys a new car. And before we know it, uh, we are in a kind of rivalry with one another. Um, and ultimately what, what James is going to argue for is that, that what Jesus did on the cross uh, ultimately um, was uh, essentially a tone for this rivalry that's always at play in us and, and to give mm-hmm. us a way forward. Um, so it's a, yeah, again, we can talk a lot about this, but that's the general idea. And I think yeah. you're exactly right, Rick, that, uh, never uh, I think has there been such a time as this where it appears that the covers have kind of been pulled back a bit on these natural rivalistic uh, sort of uh, ways of relating to one another and uh, it's uh it's I think it's always there, but it's been a bit frightening to see it uh, in the bright light of day, so. Um, one real quick comment about the forgiveness emerges that's, and we can talk more about this in the future, but it's notable for James that uh, forgiveness is already at play. So mm-hmm. in other words, um, we don't have to go and, and somehow create it. Um, rather, it's how do you begin to create the conditions, create the culture by which forgiveness that is already there. Wants to surface, right? Wants to emerge, and that's a mm-hmm. wonderfully, I think, consoling thought. Uh, yeah, and so, yeah. So, you know, historically, for leadership foundations, as we've looked at the urbanization of the world, um, you know, in this overwhelming at times sense that there's all kinds of things going on, we have we have further exegeted it in such a way that we think there's four. Uh, urban realities that surface that leadership foundations are uniquely positioned uh, to do something about. And this, I should add, Rick, and we've talked about this before, uh, is really what the wheel of change then uh, seeks to address. So the the four urban issues, the first is this idea of, of geography without community. Uh, so one of the things that the urbanization of the world has done is it's brought the world to our cities. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's, uh, it's remarkable uh, here in a city like Tacoma, uh, where you can, uh, within the, the city of Tacoma, I think it's now something like 41 different languages are spoken. Um, you know, you've got all of Southeast Asia, to be sure. Uh, you've got uh, the former Soviet Union. I mean, the list goes on and on. And yet, um, here we sit across the street from one another, and we've never been more separated um, right, so we have this common geography, uh, but we don't have a sense of community. So leadership foundations, again, goes about uh, addressing uh, that issue of how do we how do we create that. The second is that we we believe that cities are activity rich but systems poor. Uh, again, our working assumption is that in many ways our cities have been over Um and so this notion. That God spoke to me or, you know, I just got a grant and the first thing I do is create one more program, one more initiative, Um, doesn't make sense. Uh, Rather, what we need to begin to think about doing is how do we begin to build systems that get all of these activities that are already out there uh, working together in a little bit more of a seamless fashion Uh, The third, which we could, again, talk and talk and talk about, and there's a lot of different political perspective on this about why this is so, but is the notion that there is this growing and really unsustainable gap between the rich and the poor. Uh, As I think most people probably know, uh, COVID has only exasperated that. Uh, It has been a very good time for the billionaire class. Um, And again, whatever your political take is, we are simply trying to raise the issue that uh, this is not a sustainable model moving forward. And then the third or the fourth, which is is probably the most corrosive. And this is the thing you hinted at, Rick is, is, and we don't even really have <laughs> very sophisticated language by which to say it, but we just talk about it as us versus them. Uh, this, whether you call it tribalism or you, whether you call it the balkanization of society. Um, you know, there's a, there's a number of different ways to think about it, but it is, it is, you know, I'm going to use a positive word to describe a negative reality, but it is a spectacularly corrosive, um, uh, reality that we're all having to face right now. Um, but if we don't find ways, I think to, to, Talk with each other to somehow break down this us versus them. I do not think uh, we have much of a future. And the one thing I would just say, and this is, I think, a little bit of just Jim uh, Wallace. Um, it's 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 precisely here that I think uh, the Christian faith, uh, followers of Jesus, if we would just simply get our act together, um, have this rich, rich, rich tradition Uh, and history of addressing this very issue. Um, I think most people know, but it bears worth repeating. Mm -hmm. The very first time the word Christian was used, uh, it actually had to be invented to describe this aberrant behavior that takes place in Acts 13, where uh, in Antioch, uh, five different people come together uh, really representing the the known peoples of that time. Uh, It was unheard of, right? You had... Mm -hmm. Yeah. African, you had Berber, you had Jewish, uh, you had a political guy by the name of Manean out of the House of Herod Tetrarch. I mean, again, it, it was it was so unfathomable that it's like, what is that? Well, we got to invent a word because it's never been around before, and the first word they used was Christian. Mm-hmm. So that's that's baked into the very DNA, I think, of what it means to be to be a person of faith is that we we help uh, the us. Uh, become a we, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Those divisions are breaking down. So just to back up, you know, Jim's been a a good friend and a huge advocate of leadership foundations for many years. And, you know, back in the day, what what was curious about Jim was that he always has been evangelical, but, but I think really had a, what I would describe as an ecumenical spirit. And what characterized the ecumenical movement way back in the day, Rick, was this notion of, of almost a what is our lowest common denominator that we can all agree upon, and that somehow that'll get us, you know, moving together forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was it was Jim, pretty early on, that recognized, you know, and I want to be careful how I say this, but, but maybe the the poverty of that kind of approach because. After you reduced everything down to this sort of lowest common denominator, and it was now time to get to work, there wasn't anything by which to energize, right, uh, animate your work moving forward. And so Jim has been one that I think has grabbed a hold of, of something that Earl Palmer said a number of years ago at University Press. And it was this wonderfully uh, provocative statement. He said, That which goes deepest to the heart goes farthest to the world. And so really replacing, I think, the old wineskin of of ecumenism and lowest common denominator to say, no, um, actually what's going to uh, help us uh, move forward together is to be true to your belief. Uh, let, Let the taproot of your life really grab a hold of what is that conviction. And that from there, you'll be more stable, right, more capable of building relationships with others. So his book, I think, captures beautifully this deep taproot of who Jesus is um, and what Jesus means to him as well as other people. And, and says so kind of unapologetically. I think the other clever thing that, that Jim does is that he talks about this book from a perspective of question. Um, and I think you know one of the things that's so easy to run into right is just a whole bunch of answers uh, one of the one of the quotes that we talk about in leadership foundations a lot is something that the poet e e Cummings says where he describes that the beautiful answer uh, is always preceded by a more beautiful question, yeah. The whole book uh, that that we get a chance to talk with uh, with Jim about is really around these beautiful, you know, these more beautiful questions that then allow, you know, I think for people to say, okay, you know, how how might Jesus be the answer to that?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, what a what a gift uh, to have uh, Jim on the podcast and um, we're thankful for Noah, not only our podcast producer. But, uh, also, our audio journalist, and so he uh, he did an interview and uh, and and we get a chance to hear their conversation. So let's go to that now.
2: Let's do it. I'm Jim Wallace, and I'm the founder of Sojourners, and I've been working on the same issues that you all care about for a long time. We're about to approach our fiftieth year, but I began this when I was six, so it's been a long, <laughs> time. but I'm glad to be with all of you today because I care about cities deeply and I've lived in them my whole life and want to be helpful to the good work you're doing if I can be in some small way. That's great.
3: Hey, before we dive in, Jim, could you, uh, just by way of bi- biography, you said, you know, you've been at this work for a chunk of time, started at six, and I've just, <laughs> I've read, I've read a little biography. I know you uh, grew up in Detroit, right? Yeah. And and um I'm curious, you know, for many people, you know, they have a, a moment in their lives that they can point back to and say, here was a a spiritual awakening or a, a spiritual political awakening. When you think back in your own biography, Jim, would you are there places that you would say, Yeah, this is kind of what led me on the course that eventually did turn out to, you know, end up with something like sojourners
2: yeah uh there really was a, a a moment moments like that in detroit so i was a kid growing up in detroit in a plymouth brethren church which my parents helped to start so church was our life it was our second home and family our kids me and our my siblings on the old of we we'd always say why are we always the last one to leave the church? So we always were the last ones to leave. Uh, and uh, my earliest conversion in evangelicals, uh, which, which I grew up being one, uh, often have many conversions. And my first one was on a Sunday night when uh, a revival preacher was coming to preach at our chapel. And all the unsaved kids had to sit in the front row, because the closer you are to a sermon, the more impact it'll have on your life. I, think, I people think. So that's why the front row is always empty. But <laughs> my parents were nervous because uh, I was wasn't saved yet, and I was getting up in years. I was I was six, <laughs> and so they made me sit in the front row. And this preacher looked right at me. It felt like point his finger and said, "If." If Christ came back tonight, your mommy and daddy would be taken to heaven and you would be left all by yourself. Got my attention. Mm-hmm. And I worried as a six-year-old, I'd have a five-year-old sister to support. <laughs> uh, my own, and uh, so I asked my mom how to fix this. And she told me not about the wrath of God, but the love of God. That God, mm-hmm. God loved me and had a purpose in my life, or for my life, and I wanted to join God in whatever my purpose was. So, so I signed up uh, as best I could. But my second conversion uh, experience was probably more shaping, as you asked, the rest of my life, which was when I'm a teenager now in Detroit. Mm-hmm. I'm listening to my city. I'm paying attention. I'm reading the papers. I'm hearing the news. I'm having conversations. And Something very big seemed very wrong to me in my city and in the country, but nobody would talk about it in my white church and Mm. white school and white neighborhood. Uh, Why did we seem to be living so differently than people in black Detroit? Why was life uh, so different in black and white Detroit from what I was hearing and reading and, and, uh, starting to pay attention to and they wouldn't answer my questions. They just wouldn't answer my questions. I say, you're too young to ask those questions when you get older, you'll understand, or we don't know why, but it's always been that way. Uh, but the only honest answer I got was son, if, if you keep asking these questions, you're going to get in lots of trouble. And that proved to be true. Uh, wow. Anybody who was hungry um, or uh, was in jail or, uh, or 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 was was uh, had issues with police I, did, I didn't know any of those things my world wasn't like that so I tell young people uh, always trust your questions and follow them to wherever they take you. so my me to what we call back then the inner city of Detroit we were out in the suburbs uh, very comfortable we were working class middle class not a rich church or neighborhood, but but all white, uh, and I'd heard there were black churches, but we never So why have we never been to them, or seen them, or invited anybody over? Yeah. Uh, and I couldn't get answers, so I went to the city to find my answers. And I went to, there were black Plymouth Brethren churches, and Bill Pinnell, whose name you might know, was the sure, yeah. Fuller Seminary, was this young young Turk, you know, this young Black Lee leader, and he and others took me in, and I had his questions, and they began to answer my questions. He was a mentor for me early on, and I, and I took jobs uh, alongside. I needed money for college, so I needed a job. Jobs, different jobs. So I was, I went into the city to take jobs alongside young black men like me, or a little older even. But I was making money for college, and they were. Feeding their families, but that began to open up a whole new world for me of listening. Mm. To people who were working alongside me in factories and different places. Then I got a job at Detroit Edison Company <laughs> as a janitor downtown. Drove in every day, and I liked that because I get to move heavy desks around, and I like moving heavy desks. I was young and <laughs> strong, I used to work out, and so I thought uh, this would be cool. and And I met this young guy named Butch. Was also a janitor, and we got put on the heavy desks. And I'm so old, Noah, that I I, um, I, I used to be an elevator operator when they had elevator wow. Operators. I've heard of such people. things. I've so seen them in movies. The little, little <laughs> thing you sit on, and and uh, and so when the elevator operators were always old guys, when they got sick or on vacation, uh, Butch and I would be thrown into the elevators to ride. But now, when you're an elevator operator, you get a morning break in an afternoon break because your head would spin. And so I, on my breaks, went into his elevator, <laughs> would ride right up and down with him, and we'd just talk and talk and talk. <laughs> on his breaks, he'd come and ride right up and down with me, and we talked and talked and talked. And I realized that while Butch and I were born in the same city, that we lived in different countries in Detroit. Mm. The epiphany moment for me was, and he brought me home for dinner one night to meet his mother. His father had passed, so he was the breadwinner, and his siblings. And so I met his mother. Like my mother, she wasn't political. and She was just worried about her kids, like my mom was. I'm worried about the ideas of, of her young son, and my mom was worried, too, as I was learning all this stuff. But we got talking about the police. You remember the so-called riot, the uprising in Detroit— 1967. This is before that, but the Kerner report, which described why that happened in Troy and Newark, always said there was a policing incident that begins such a, such a, such an arrest. Mm-hmm. I asked her about the police, she said this. She said, "Well, yeah, this is my, I my tell stories. My husband, uh, my father, my grandfather, and and some of us too as women, we can tell a lot of stories." So I tell my kids, she said, I tell my kids, if you ever get lost and can't find your way home and you see a policeman duck under a stairwell, hide behind a building, wait till he passes, and then find your way home. When Mm -hmm. she said that my mother's words to her five kids echoed in my head, it says, it says uh, visual as I, right now, just telling you I can feel that moment. And my mother would say, you ever lost? Can't find your way home. Look for a policeman. Right. He's your friend. He'll take you by the hand and bring you home. Uh, Those are epiphanies. And that was one of first. And um, they change your way of thinking, your worldview, your, uh, your, your sense of who you are and where you are and what the world is like around you. It's relationships. I've learned more about the world from being places I was never supposed to be with people I was never supposed to meet or know or talk to. So Detroit, that's where it happened.
3: That's a great story, Jim. And I, uh, what I really appreciate about you telling it is you probably hung out with enough of these folks where, you know, you ask them a, a question like that, you know, like what led you to this? Uh, and, it, and you, you hear the, you know, it was just, it came out the dome, you know, it was just me being really smart or I had an epiphany, uh, you know, or it was just some kind of internal process versus kind of your description of these relationships, right. Whether it was a Bill Pinnell welcoming in or, Butch and family, uh, you know, giving you a perspective, you know, that as a kid in the outskirts of Detroit never had, like just the relationship is, is ultimately the thing that, uh, that changes us. So I really appreciate you framing it that way.
2: I read books, but it was the relationships. It was the context. It was, uh, what you see, your worldview depends on what you see when you get out of bed in the morning. Yeah. who you're talking to every day, who your friends are. So to me, it's books are great and dome experiences are great. All that's great. But it is relationships that are yeah. what shapes your life. And, and what do we mean? That's what incarnation, that's what's yeah. different Christian faith than any other faith. Uh, I work interfaith all the time. But what's different is incarnation, God with us. It's, it's context is so important, where you're from, uh, who you know, who you're with that shapes everything. And that's why, you know, I, when I came home one day from one of those trips to Detroit, an elder in my church took me aside and he said, now, Jim, you have to understand Christianity has nothing to do with racism. That's political. And our faith is personal. Hmm. And that's tonight the moment I left in my head and my heart. I, if, my Christian faith has nothing to do with what's ripping me up, and I want nothing to do with it either. So I joined the student movements in my time—civil mm-hmm. rights, anti-war, and and uh, justice—and and and I was secular at Michigan State. I didn't want anything to do with the churches. But finally, those years made me an activist. I wanted to change the world. I needed a foundation. I needed a some guidance, I needed some, what do I act out of, you know, how, what, how I sustain myself. And frankly, uh, the writings of Ho Chi Minh, Karl Marx, and Che Guevara, which we were all reading back then, weren't satisfying. Hmm. So I went back to the New Testament where I had been raised, you know. Maybe I never got shit of Jesus. And I read the Gospels on my own after we had shut down the university in my senior year the National Student Strike, which I helped to lead. And I found this text in Matthew 25, which became my conversion text. It was the, you know it well, you're all the foundation. People know it well. It was the, it was me text. I was hungry. I was thirsty. I was naked. I was a stranger means immigrant. I was sick. I was in prison. It was me. Lord, we didn't know it was you. Had we known it was you, we would have formed a social action committee or something. No, it was and as you've done to the least of these you've done to me, never had I read anything as radical as that. Mm. Uh, and so that's what brought me to Christ. Matthew 25 was my conversion text that brought me to Christ, which means that you've got to go outside yourself, your boundaries, your, your borders. Uh, uh, y- you can't find the least of these unless you go to them. <laughs> You know uh, most of us are not waiting in our door so what does it mean to uh, to change our, our position in the world our our location and changing our location often will change our vocation so that's a great that's
3: really well said and a real good frame of the Incarnation right is seeing God in you know in the face of the victim yep I think and and in the, the going too right? Yeah, that's, that's good. And I want to pick up on a couple, maybe uh, as a way to sort of kind of pivot to, you know, today, Jim, I want to pick up on a couple threads that you lifted up really well. And firstly, you know, uh, I was struck in this book, um, just that it was framed in a series of questions, right? Um, Versus kind of a series of I don't know, principles, (laughs) you know, truisms. Uh, You framed them, uh, you could have framed the book in a number of different ways, but you framed it in terms of these questions. And you kind of lifted this up in your own biography. What role do you think, uh, you know, asking questions uh, plays? And what is the importance of it maybe today in light of the political climate, in light of the climate of the world, Why is question asking so important, and and why did you frame your book that way?
2: Yeah, well, because Jesus um, asked or prompted questions that uh, if we think he meant what he said, what does it mean for us? Uh, And these questions interrogate uh, the depth of everything. Mm. Lives in our society, uh, and and they take us deeper. It's uh, I often say, don't go left, don't go right, go deeper. <laughs> what does it mean to to go deeper into Jesus and His questions, what He's asking? Um, and back to Detroit, <laughs> I, I I've been reading your stuff, and this playground thing that you guys talk about, yeah is really cool, and I've got a story about about my mom back in Detroit and about playgrounds because this really relates to what you're doing. So my mom, uh, my parents started this Brethren Church and and she always said there's two things you gotta do. Just two things you gotta always do. If if on a playground no one's playing with if his kids on a playground no one's playing with if some kid's out there and no one's playing with that kid, you play with them." Mm. And if I see a playground where you're there and some kid's just out by himself, no one's playing with him, you're in trouble. You play with that kid. Second, if there's a bully on the playground, you'd be the one to stand up to him. Now, she's saying two kinds of people are really important here. One is those who are left out, left behind, need attention. Uh, and those are bullies. Mm. Who just abuse other people and you gotta have a relation with both those people. You gotta, you gotta show attention to the ones who are left out, left behind. And then, then you stand up to the bullies. Um, and, uh, you know, um, that's how I view politics. Hmm. That's how I viewed, a, a presidential debate I saw last night. Hmm. um, uh, where is their empathy for other people and their problems and what's happening in their lives? Just mm-hmm. bullying, just uh, abuse. Um, uh, we see all that in our politics. And that mm-hmm. goes in liberal, conservative, Republican, Democrat, left and right. These aren't different political philosophies, which you're fine. This is how we treat people. And uh, are we, uh, do we want to reach out to people or do we bully people? So those are, those are pretty big questions that she asked me. And then, so I was always asking those questions and, and the Jesus questions. um, What about Jesus? Yeah. What did he say? What do you think? Does it matter? Um, The neighbor question, Jesus says, who is my neighbor? Well, actually it wasn't, he was a lawyer came to him and said, what do you do to inherit eternal life in Jesus? Well, you love God, <laughs> and you love your neighbor as yourself. Pretty simple. Okay, so who is my neighbor? Just who is my neighbor? And I could, I, when I went to that passage for this book, I could sense that this was a Washington lawyer, because uh, I know that tone, tone of voice. It wasn't like, who is my neighbor? How can I bring him? It's like, exactly who is my neighbor? What do you mean? You know, it's narrowing. And then he gives Jesus the good Samaritan story, which we all know so well. Even non-Christians know, have heard of that story. Yeah. The story makes clear that it's not just about stopping and helping and not walking past a guy on the ground and taking your time. And he, That's all great. What, but he's using the Samaritan who no Judeans thought were good. There were no good Samaritans. Someone different than them who is helping someone different than him. So what's clear there is your neighbor is outside your pathway, your normal environment, who you know and who you hang with. Your neighbor, you gotta go outside your pathway to find your neighbor here. That's what he gave as an example of who your neighbor is. Your neighbor is someone who's different than you. And that's the neighbor. That parable tells us to love. Mm -hmm. Again, it's more than politics, but that sure relates to politics. It sure does. Yep. You know, um,
3: the, the question that I was thinking about a lot, and I'd love to hear, uh, you, you brought up even the bully question on the playground, right? That's why the playground is such a good metaphor. It's the whole world, all of politics. Yeah. Don't go, don't look further than the playground. Um, dealing with the bully, and, uh, uh, issues of power and how do you, how do you engage, uh, abuses of power? Um, I think that's a, it's a real rife question right now. I think for a lot of us that see that in the U S and the world, right. It's nothing new. And yet I do think there are people that are asking, you know, how do you, how do you do that? How do you engage the bully, you know, without becoming a bully? How do you, how do you, get at the power question and continue to lift up this person, Jesus, who, who seemed to be able to, you know, address issues of power, but ultimately was uh, a victim of it. Right. In, in being crucified. And there is this growing sense. I don't know if you feel this as well, where it's like, you know, peace doesn't work or uh, nonviolence, you know, screw it. It's, it's not as effective as other methods. Um, what would you say to that? What would you say in light of these abuses of power, you know, uh, is Jesus still relevant? <laughs> uh, you know. Oh, yeah.
2: Oh, yeah. Well, that book's called The Power Question. Yep. And, uh, and what was interesting to me was at the Last Supper, right, Jesus' last meal before he's being crucified, He's with his disciples, right? And, uh, and it was so the big issue was who gets to sit at the table with him, right? Who gets to be close and sit next to him? And even their parents got involved, the disciples' parents pushing for their kids. Now, as yeah. a lead coach for 22 seasons, I've. Seen, <laughs> <all> right. <laughs> so, right. So, uh, uh, Jesus says, well, you know how it is with Gentiles. Um, who lord it over the people. That's about power. They lord it over the people. It's about winning and losing and, and who's in charge and, and who's interested in taking care of. It's about power. It's about serving themselves. But it won't be that way. We, we're going to do this differently. It won't be that way with you. We're going we're gonna to say the leader is the one who's the servant of everybody else. And and it's taking care of everybody else, and and that's so where we get the idea of public service. Right? So right. Wonder, what does that mean? Most of your people in the Leuchter Foundation are they're doing this because of they want to be in service to their communities in different there, are all kinds of different roles and vocations and jobs. That serve. that's why you exist, right? And he's, and they just weren't getting it. Um, well, I want to be here and I want to be, be there. He says, well, let me show you what I mean. And he washes their feet. He washes their feet. Here's what I mean by leadership or by power. We're gonna I'm gonna let me wash your feet. So this is again so much deeper than politics, but this is what it means uh, to serve. I mean the leader is the one who in a disaster or a dangerous situation finds the way out for everybody. And then is the last one in line. Mm. Um, not who's also, so you have to look at leaders and say, are they serving anybody but themselves? You know, what is this idea of the Catholic notion of the common good? What does that mean? Uh, the playground, yeah, you know, not, not, not just, Am I doing well in the playground? Or am I in charge in the playground? Or am I the one who's getting all the attention? Am I no, it's is the playground safe for people, or does it make them afraid? Mm-hmm. So that's everything to do with leadership as servanthood, which is a nice phrase, but that is so relevant now to our to our public life, our faith in public life, what, who's, who's serving uh, the common good, the playground, the other people, and who's just really there for themselves. Yeah.
3: And it's a, (laughs) it's a, it's a vulnerable uh, place to put yourself in the place of a leader, especially when there's bullies involved. Right. Um, you know the i think something that i heard you say that i really connect with and agree with but also just recognize you know it ain't easy is you know putting yourself is trying to find a way for everybody you know a way out for everybody and that includes that includes the bully right you know or recognizing the humanity in the bully um that's not easy um and and you can imagine you know jesus you know, deciding to, uh, you know, take that radical move of washing feet amidst a power play, right? (laughs) Like, uh, you know, the power play, especially when you think about that, you know, it's like, oh, geez, do I actually put myself in this really vulnerable place? Uh, And, you know, I think it's a pretty, you know, in frame that way, it's like servanthood is not just sort of a good Christian thing to do. It's, um, it's a really courageous act, right?
2: And then he went to a cross. <laughs> yeah. Following that, he went to a cross. And the cross and the resurrection are the core of our social strategy. <laughs> this isn't just personal atonement. It's all of that. But it's this is the way we do it. When you celebrate, uh, I love doing Eucharist. So when you're breaking the bread and sharing mm-hmm. it, say. This is the way Jesus wants to do this again and again. Do this, yeah. do, do this. Uh, this is how we do it. He's saying, "This is our strategy. This is what we mean by 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 uh, for God so love the world. This is how we love the world. This is the way we 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 do things, and that's rooted in the first chapter of the first book of the Bible in Genesis. What I call the image question. Mm-hmm. One twenty-six. It says we're all made in the image and likeness of God. No exceptions. All of humanity, all humans are made in the image of God, and that's the foundational point for people of faith in politics. Is this affirming and allowing the flourishing of the image of God, or this is degrading and? And 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 hurting and, and dividing us. There's, the uh, loving your neighbor with no exceptions. And you know, um, uh, I heard a debate last night where one of the candidates wouldn't condemn white supremacy. Now, white supremacy is anti-God. Mm. Uh, racism is anti-Christ. Mm-hmm. I mean, these aren't political issues or left and right issues right are what does it mean to honor the image of God in all of us and everybody on the playground you know and so uh, there has to be a strong stand against all the things that are used to divide and polarize us appeals to uh, racial grievance and fear and hatred even violence this is this is i'm doing we're doing at Sojourners with Barbara and the National African American Clergy Network. We're doing voter voter protection in nine states where plans are underway to deliberately suppress voters based on their skin color. That's not rhetoric, that's a plan. I could lay it out for you. That's a plan. They wanna suppress black voters uh, and I'm, I've told secretaries of state, who are running elections, we're in this, we call it lawyers and callers, clergy with lawyers at the polling places, clergy with the lawyers uh, to protect the image of God. And voter suppression is throwing away Imago Dei. So what does it mean to say we believe in the image of God? We don't apply it, it's gonna be applied to where the image of God is being threatened. Uh, racial policing is a threat to the image of God. Uh, systematic racism in any of our systems, all our systems. It, it's not just uh, a political issue, It, it it's, it's an image of God issue. So that's why serving each other is part of God's purpose to have, that we would have together, it says in the uh, text, dominion, meaning stewardship. <laughs> Of the rest of the creation and the planet and the creatures. We together do that, but we don't have dominion over each other. To have dominion over each other and try and do that when when white people accept a system that is dominion over people of color, that's a violation of the first chapter in the first book of the Bible. That's why issues for us are theological and not just political. And yeah. Jesus said eight times, don't be afraid. That's Our prophet right. says, be afraid all the time. He says, no, don't be afraid. Then he says, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free.
3: Amen. Amen. Yep. Nope. Jim, it was a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for set, setting aside time for us.
0: Wow, what a great conversation. Mm-hmm. And I was really uh, taken back because, you know, I'm a church guy. You know, um, that's one of my things. <laughs> yeah, I, make, I, make, I make church, church services. <laughs> I make church services, Dave. Uh, and um, I'm like the deli of uh, the gospel. And so yeah. uh, uh, putting out those uh, pastrami's on a Sunday by Sunday basis. And the thing is that, uh, you know, uh, it was, I don't know, I mean, hmm, I guess you could say embarrassing, but at the same time, I, I, I agree with the fact that a part of what uh, motivated Jim's writing of this profound book was the fact that the inequities he saw in culture were not really being addressed Mm -hmm. in his church experience. Uh, That, you know, that's, I I can see that. And at the same time, that's, uh, it's sad. Yeah. Yeah. But he's leading us in the other direction. I think with this book, he's helping us realize that, Hey um, you know, there shouldn't be a disconnect. Yeah, I, you know, I think,
1: um, and Rick, you're probably this way. I know I'm this way, uh, but I'll add to describe Jim this way from a line in uh, Robert Frost's poem uh, where he's he's kind of talking about his sort of cantankerous uh, self, and he said, "Well, he said, I, I say it this way. I have a lover's quarrel with the world," mm-hmm. and and I've always liked that phrase uh, because. You know, if you read Frost's poetry, he's got some very sharp uh, things to say. Uh, I mean, raises up issues that, that you know, are at best uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but you, when you sit with this poetry for long enough, you realize it sort of emanates from this, uh, I think, this deep uh, abiding love for the world. And I think that's Jim and his relationship to the church. Um yeah. You know, I think he has had a lover's quarrel, and uh, when you talk with jim, um, you know sharp things to say for sure I mean, I think a prophetic quality would not be an overstatement about who he is, uh, but he 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 loves the church and, yeah. and believes Jesus's words about the church. I think the other thing that that I would say that comes up with regard to his experience. Is, is just to remind, I think, our listeners and Rick, you and I, to remind ourselves that ultimately this thing called Christianity uh, is, is not uh, a right theory that then somehow moves to practice. Um, I mean, it, it can do that. But rather, and I think the Book of Acts is a spectacular example of this, it is an experience that then reflects back on well, what was it that just took place? And I think that was that's Jim, um, right? He he had an experience, uh, particularly within the African American community in Detroit, um, that that sort of overwhelmed him, and and it then began to cause his reflection. Uh, rather than the other way around. And I, Mm -hmm. I think that's a good, a good uh, idea for all of us, you know, experience first, uh, and then think about the theological ramifications of it.
0: Yeah. And his, uh, one of his quotes uh, from early in the book talks about um, our particular part of the world in, uh, you know, North America Mm -hmm. um, and how we are, um, in deep cultural political and uh, all kinds of other uh, divisions that we're seeing, but he says it's uh, a moral and spiritual crisis. And, and, you know, kind of makes reference to uh, the writings of the apostle Paul on that. But one of the things that's interesting is he says uh, these things, um, these fundamental questions that Jesus asks of us will remain the same and will not change regardless of election outcomes. (laughs) And I think that there's a sense in which we could just kind of vote our way out of having to, talk to Jesus about, (laughs) you know, moral and and spiritual uh, issues and, and especially in our season, um, you know, you know, the fall of a, of an election year. So a very important book. Well, yeah. In
1: fact, I think when this uh, podcast is released, it'll be right around the time of, you know, whether or not we have a new president and I think it's a really good word for all of us. Um, I mean, I know I have some, pretty strong positions on this upcoming election, as I'm sure you do, Rick, and mm-hmm. have many others. Uh, but to kind of just hold on loosely um, to the idea that somehow uh, the answer, uh, the silver bullet, is going to be whatever you think it is by way of a particular personality. Um, it's, it's a much larger, uh, it, it's a much more transcendent reality that we are uh, in the midst of and it's going to have much more to do as opposed to one person or one party, but how we work across uh, the aisle, uh, the street, um, you know, the backyards, uh, the fences uh, that currently separate
0: us. And real relationships. Um, and like you said, uh, you know, they sometimes have a component of, a, you know, a romantic quarrel, uh, you know, in, in contests, but yeah, they're, yeah. Uh, you know, they're, they're not um, haphazard. You know, nobody accidentally. Actually, the hard-won space uh, of a friendship is is uh, is something that's so so prized. But uh, yeah. so we really appreciate Jim and his, uh, you yeah, know, wonderful, his wonderful takeaways. Yeah, and especially this this particular book. Um, and again, uh, um, we want to have you share. Our, our podcast and uh, and also contribute to it. If you have any questions, ideas, uh, you can always email us uh, at uh, info at leadershipfoundations.org. But, you know, our final segment is called Seeing the City. We added this a uh, few, I don't know, several podcasts ago, but we like to ask a question, um, you know, just kind of muse a little bit about what recommendation would help us more clearly see the city as a playground as opposed to a battleground Mm -hmm. Uh, of course this could be a film a tv show a book a practice a poem you know and uh it can't be a poem dave because you've already uh (laughs) you've already quoted too many poets today but uh but i just thought i'd ask you that question because right now we're um one or a couple games into the world series and i know that uh, jim had made a reference to you know a little league baseball.
2: Well, next door, right next door to my house. The reason we live here is the baseball field. <laughs> it's the playground. It's a park, and there are four baseball diamonds. and And I love being on that field because uh, on the field, I am not Jim Wallace. I am Coach Jim. I am Coach Jim. I love being Coach Jim over there. And I still see parents of kids that I coach for a long time. and And there, it's uh, it's what it means to to to, to be a team. Uh, people who are different than you.
1: Yeah, it was uh, it was fun to listen to uh, Jim reference the fact that he had been his kid's coach for, I, gosh, I think it was like fifteen plus years. Uh, so really incredible. <laughs> well, so in that spirit, I, I think I felt like I needed to reach into some kind of baseball idea uh, that could help us. I should add here that, uh, you know, my baseball career ended uh, about the time that pitchers learned how to throw curve balls. I thought there was something fundamentally unjust about the fact that you could throw a ball at a batter's head and have it curve over the plate and be called a strike. So I really in protest, I just said enough of this. and headed, headed towards the, uh, the hard court and the basketball that felt infinitely more Christian and loving. Yes, uh, And then I found out later on that, but there are actually two books, um, that I, I have, uh, deeply, uh, enjoyed. Uh, the first, uh, is, is a book called the art of fielding by Chad Harbach. And, uh, It really uses, I mean, baseball simply just as a metaphor for Mm -hmm. uh, what what does it mean to become human Um, in the midst of all of the, you know, the betrayals and the loves and the emotions. um, It's just a a marvelous, marvelous book that I would highly recommend. The second in this book is as far removed in some ways uh, as you can be, but it's still about baseball. It's called Men at Work by George Will. And Mm -hmm. George uh, is the conservative columnist for the Washington Post. But he takes a pitcher, a uh, batter, uh, a fielder, and a manager and writes about the game, each from their perspective. And in particular, I think that book, uh, Rick, for me, was uh, the recognition that depending on what position you have, the whole game changes. I mean, Tony La Russa, who's the manager that he uh, talks about um, is very different uh, than uh, Cal Ripken, who is the fielder that he talks about. Mm -hmm. And I think I've always walked away going, okay, I'm seeing the city, but then to ask the almost existential question, but what position today? Is it executive director of said nonprofit? Is it, uh, family member uh, of the Hillises uh, is it now, <clears throat> in my case, grandfather, um, and that position, I think, determines a lot of how well we see. So, <clears throat> both those books, uh, "The Art of Fielding"
0: and "Men at Work," I would highly recommend. Thanks, Dave. Yeah, those are good recommendations, and uh, super timely for uh, for the time of year when we, uh, uh, at least in our part of the world. Uh, are sort of prohibited from being in the field because of the weather and we're just better off reading about the game (laughs) during this time. So, Hey, thanks. Have a, have a great rest of your day, rest of your week. And uh, again, uh, um, let us know uh, any of your thoughts and we look forward to uh, our next podcast together on city as playground. See you Dave. You too, Rick.